It is an exciting start up to the new year. I know many of you grabbed a Bible reading plan, whether that's reading through the New Testament in a year, the whole Bible in a year, or there's a read through the whole Bible in three year plan out there. Hopefully uh, many of you grabbed that, but if you didn't, you can do that. And then all the different opportunities to be growing together at the church with our growth group starting up, uh, with Bible class starting next week in First Peter, and with our men's and women's Bible studies. So I really hope you take advantage of those opportunities. We are getting back into the book of Isaiah. We've been preaching through the whole book, and we're on chapter 43 today. So if you're using the Bible that's in the rack in front of you, that looks like this. That's on page 603, page 603 for Isaiah 43. And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 43. But now, thus says Yahweh, who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I'll bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among you can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear it and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh. And I am God. And henceforth, I am he. There's none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, 
For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They're extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they may declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I've not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, collectively, right now, we acknowledge that our time in your word, singing it, praying in light of it, hearing it read, and then lingering over it in this next stretch is uh, of no great value apart from your Holy Spirit opening our ears and our eyes. We have ears, but we tend to be deaf. We have eyes, but we tend to be blind. We need your spiritual work in us. So we unite our prayers, asking for the powerful working of your spirit through your word. Amen. A few years back, I was sitting with a friend who had just gone through some awful things. And as he sat as he sat sharing with me, I ached for him to know God's character. To be able to see him as he is. To know him as he is. I knew if, if he only knew what God is like, he'd run to him. If you only know what God is like, 
You'll run to him. I know it. So as I started reading through this chapter in preparation for preaching it, and it was, became apparent how beautifully it captures who God is. My mind drifted back to that conversation with my friend. This is the God I wanted him to know. This is the God I want you to know. And this is the God I want to know for myself better and better and better. Now, in order to distill all that's in this chapter, I want to divide it into three sections, each centered around God's words to us, specific words that reveal his character. The first set of words are these. I love you. This is verses 1 to 8. I love you, verses 1 to 8. You hear those words, I love you. We, we need to remember, this is the God of the universe speaking. The, the spiritual being that brought all of this into existence. The cosmic potter. Aristotle's unmoved mover. And that God at the beginning of verse 4 says these words. Hear them begin again. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Just let those words sink in. I love you. This past week I scoured various holy books to see if any other so-called God spoke like that. I couldn't find any such words. Not in the Quran. Not in the Book of Mormon. Not in the Bhagavad Gita. But 2,700 years ago, before it was in vogue for gods to be loving and forgiving, that's how Yahweh spoke. Because it's who he is. Not because it fits our cultural moment. Now we could kill this verse with a thousand qualifications. We know it wasn't originally given to us. It was spoken to Israel. In relation to how God was going to rescue them from exile. We can see that just before and just after it. The Babylonian captors, along with Egypt and Cush and Seba, would fall as part of the Israelites returning from exile. There was going to be a sort of just prisoner swap in which the captives are freed in exchange for the oppressors. And this would happen at the hand of Cyrus, who we'll be learning more about in the next chapter. 
But verses 5 and 6 are pretty clear that this is about a return from exile. But those qualifications, far from being faithful exegesis, miss the boat altogether. Perhaps the most esteemed secular commentator on Isaiah says, Here, the text follows the trend of the whole book toward as wide and general an application as possible. As we've been reading along in Isaiah, it's become plain. He loves to take the present situation of the Jews in that day and use that to speak of far bigger and greater things. And as we've pointed out, he's he's really good on the clutch. You don't know when he's shifting the gears. There's no lurching. He moves in and out of the present and the future so seamlessly. And I want you to see how he does that in our passage. Look at how it begins. Verse 1. Now thus says, when you see Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh's name. Now thus says Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. It couldn't be more apparent that he's speaking about Israel. And yet there's more going on. Because the word there, create, is the dominant word of Genesis chapter 1. When God is creating not Israel, but the whole world. And then the word formed is the dominant word of Genesis 2. When the Bible zeroes in and describes how God created Adam and Eve. So it's not so much that he's saying, Israel, I created and formed you. It's more like he's saying, I created the whole world and formed and fashioned the first man and woman. And that general truth applies to you, Israel. It's not just some historic reality. It's a present reality for you. And then look down at verse 7, near where this section ends. This this return from exile is going to mark the beginning of a new era of salvation. And who is going to be part of that, according to verse 7? Everyone who is called by my name, whom I, what? Created for my glory. Whom I what? Formed and made. So yes, in a certain way, this is something Yahweh is saying to his chosen people, Israel, who are about to go into exile, and so he wants to give them words of comfort that he is going to bring them back. But they are also words for anyone who would receive them. I love you. Perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible is in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
If there's, there's just one thing to take away from this sermon, hear God saying, I love you. What do we do with that? What's, what's the implication of that? Some of us intuitively get why it's important that God loves us, but some of us don't. It's just a concept. Well, I want, I want Yahweh himself to be able to answer that. See there in the middle of verse 1? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. And then verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. He had redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And for any who have embraced Christ, he's redeemed us from our sin. He loves us enough to rescue us, enough to buy us back, to redeem us so that we need not fear. The Creator God is with us, so we need not fear. There are many of us in this room who make most of our decisions based on fear. Fear that we'll be hurt again. Fear that those emotions we've tried to push down will rear their ugly heads again. Fear that I'll turn out like my parents. Or fear that I'll let down my parents. Fear that I'll mess up my kids. Fear that my kids will mess up my life. It could go on. But fear is a dominant motivator for us. So this reality of God's love is a game changer. Not because our circumstances will change, either our past circumstances or the future. But because of who is with us and who is for us, in those circumstances, no matter how hard they are. If we're in Christ, we are redeemed. If we are in Christ, we are, God is with us. And Yahweh says to us, I love you. And so we're safe. Be gone, fear. Verse 2, the waters won't overwhelm us. He'll keep us from drowning. The fire won't consume us. More on those verses later. But I told you that I'd scoured various sacred writings for similar statements. I love you from other so-called gods. And here's the other interesting thing I found. The other holy books do tell us of a God who loves he loves the righteous, the good. When they speak of God loving, and they do, they differentiate between who he loves and who he doesn't love. 
There's always this threshold of goodness that you have to meet, and then God loves you. But look how this section ends in verse 8. He's been, he's been summoning, summoning the peoples who've been scattered. Come, come. And now look how he describes them. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. He's about to, he's about to, in verse 9, start talking to the nations and gathering the nations. But here, he's talking about the very people he just summoned, the very people he just said to them, I love you. And who are these people? People who have eyes but who are blind. People who are, have ears but who are deaf. Now, if we've been tracking with Isaiah, we know this language describes a deep rejection of God and his word. A foolishness that chases after idols instead of worshiping Yahweh. That's who God is saying he loves. Not only did God so love the world, John 3.16, but God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's Romans 5.8. I'm not preaching some sort of universalism. God's love for sinners doesn't mean all sinners are ultimately going to escape hell. But the order here is important. We don't start by being good enough, and then God opens his heart of love. He loves us while we are still rebels. And as the rest of the Bible will tell, that love is what draws us to him. That love which is shown most profoundly in Christ is what transforms us. So here's what it means then. God loves sinners. <clears throat> if you are in this room, and you feel like you're too dirty for God. It means that's a lie. Your sin, it's just too dark. Your path of rebellion, it's just too long and cemented. May you think that. And then God puts these words in the Bible. I love you. When you had eyes, but were blind. When you had ears, but were still deaf. Like Israel of Isaiah's day. Verses 1 to 8. I love you. Then we start a new section. It's related to the first. Verses 9 to 21. 
I'm going to give you the heading in a second, but just to drive you note-takers crazy, I'm not going to give it at the outset. God, in verse 9, summons all the nations before them and asks them to do the impossible, to predict or foretell the future. He wants them to prove that them and their gods can foretell what is going to happen. That's the ask at the end of verse 9. Of course, they're not able. Which is so different from how God operates, which we see in verse 12. I declared and saved and proclaim. Think back to how God rescued Israel out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. This is kind of a major backdrop for this chapter. He had Moses announce what he was going to do and announced how it was going to play out well before it happened. I'm going to rescue Israel. But Pharaoh's heart's going to be hard. And you're going to do sign after sign, and ultimately it's going to show my ultimate victory over Egypt. He foretold it. He called the shot. And then, after he declared it, he did it. He actually saved them. And then he had that proclaimed, written down in his scriptures. Declare, save, Proclaim. See that in verse 12 and remember it because that's God's M.O. It's how he operates. He's done it all along in the Bible, right up until the prophecies of Isaiah. And he's still doing it in this chapter through Isaiah. He's telling about how he's going to rescue from the Babylonian exile. And that rescue, even though it's from the hands of the Babylonians, will involve the capture of the Egyptians too. And then in chapter 44, he's going to actually name who the rescuer will be, the name Cyrus, given some 150 years before Cyrus arose and these things happened. Not to mention the other prophecies in the book of Isaiah about a virgin-born Emmanuel, about a child who's also a king and also God, who will bring light into our darkness about a sheep who will be slain for our sins, declare, save, proclaim. Why is this God's MO? Why is it the way he operates? Because it proves that he alone is God. Okay, so here's the heading from, for this section. It comes first in verse 10. I am he. You see that? Very end of verse 10. I am he. Or I am the one, as some translators put it. This phrase actually occurs seven times in the book of Isaiah. And all but one of them are between chapter 41 and 48. So right in this section. Three of them are in our chapter. What does it mean? I am he. I am the one. 
No, it means He alone is God. See that in verse 12? I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. See that in verse 10? You are my witnesses. Oh, sorry. He says in the middle of verse 10, and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So this declaring first and then saving, he's the only one who can do that because he alone is God. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, I want to challenge you. I want to give you a challenge. Find another God who does this. Look at all the other religions that are out there. Do verse 9. I summon the witnesses. Come, prove it. You can look. There aren't other gods who do this. It doesn't happen because those other gods are false. They're made up. Some ape the God of the Bible and some are altogether different, but none of them begin first with declaring before saving and then having that proclaimed because they can't do it. And to further prove that Yahweh alone is God, to prove that I am He... God does some declaring in verses 14 to 21. It's an extended declaration of what's going to happen. He kind of says, you remember what I did when I rescued you from Egypt, in verses 16 and 17. A path through mighty waters, an army flame that's extinguished. Notice the echo of water and fire from earlier. God declared it, and he saved them in the Exodus. But then in verses 18 and 19, he declares, I'm going to do something again, something new. And then he goes on to use metaphorical language to describe how he'll rescue the people from exile. We know that's what he's describing because that's been so clear in the context. But as is typical in Isaiah, the metaphorical language tips the hand that there's an even bigger and greater rescue. It's about something more than mere return from exile. It's about bringing streams in the desert, restoring blessing to a land that was cursed, freeing even the jackals and the ostriches from the yoke of this fallen world. Do we believe God? Do we trust him when he says, I am he? We've got two sections and two headings. I love you and I am he. And that first heading sounds a lot more important than the second one. But they actually are really tightly bound to one another. We need to understand the logic of the passage. We can trust the statement, I love you, because the second statement, I am he, is true. 
I want, I want to lock this into our brain, and I want to do it by talking about hymns. Stick with me. I think it'll help. Have you noticed how um, there's kind of been a trend over the last decade or so of taking old hymns and updating them? You know, you, you stick in a chorus, maybe arrange it slightly differently, add a verse or take away a verse, and voila, you have this great new song that lots of churches are going to sing, and you can make lots of money off of John Newton or whoever it is. Cynicism aside, I actually typically like those updates. For their, despite some of those flaws, they offer a new and compelling way to sing some of the most profound truths that have survived the centuries. So, so one of the rewrites that we do in our church, we sing in our churches, of the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. We sing a new one called Jesus Firm Foundation. But, but the new rendition actually radically changes the meaning of the old one. Because they both talk about our foundation as two completely different things. So the song starts, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, you who to Jesus for refuge have fled. You see how, in the language of the hymn, what is the firm foundation? It's, it's Scripture. And then that specific hymn goes on to quote or paraphrase Isaiah. You might have noticed that as we read. This, this how firm a foundation is just lifting these promises of Isaiah Two of the stanzas right from our chapter, one, from a, uh, one stanza from a, a, an earlier chapter of Isaiah. But in other words, it's saying, our foundation is a God who has made promises to us in scriptures. We can take it to the bank that the deep waters won't overflow. We can be sure that the fiery trials will not cause us to be burned. We can fear not because he is with us. But, but why is that a sure foundation? Any old God can say those words, and you'll find such words in all the holy books. But the scriptures are uniquely a firm foundation because they contain all that God declared he would do ahead of time. We read ahead of time of him declaring what he's going to do. And then because I am he, the one true God, the one who knows the end from the beginning. Because he is he, then it's true. It's true that he loves us. It's true that he redeemed us and is with us. So we actually don't need to be afraid. The scriptures are then our firm foundation. It's a really profound message. In Isaiah 42, or 43 I mean, and in the old hymn. And then the new hymn comes along, and what's the firm foundation as it rewrites it? It's Jesus 
which is also true. The new song is totally true. Jesus is a good foundation for us. But that's not what the original hymn was saying. And retrofitting a chorus that makes Jesus the firm foundation to a hymn meant to show that the scriptures are a firm foundation radically changes the song. Okay, so that's a long illustration about hymns. But I did that because I hope it locks in and makes a point that causes this section to be memorable. That is, the second section, the I am He, where God declares He's uniquely God. He's the only true God. He declares it, and then He saves, and then He proclaims, means that His Scripture is trustworthy. And so when He says, I love you, I am with you, fear not, I have redeemed you, we can have confidence that it's true. Now, I want to make um, one more point before I wrap up this middle section. Remember that first section, I love you, came with an imperative, fear not. This second section, I am he, also comes with an imperative, proclaim. Proclaim. Look at verse 10, the beginning. You are my witnesses. And then verse 12 in the middle. You are my witnesses. Both times were to be witnesses to the reality that I am he. Specifically in verse 11, that apart from him there is no savior. He alone is God. Which means he alone is the redeemer. He alone is the Savior. And then look how this section ends. I said it was 9 to 21. Look at verse 21. The people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. If you notice as he's reading, that's actually a repeated concept in this chapter. He has a purpose in doing all this. We declare his praise. It's, it's echoed in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We are, we are his chosen people. We're saved that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. He declared it. Then he saves. And then it's about proclamation. Some of that proclamation is just recording in the scriptures. But we are part of that proclaiming. The world needs to know that there is one God who is the only Savior. And just as Israel was here being called to be witnesses of this declaring first and then saving, we should be prepared to do the same. So let me just ask you, would you be able to to go to a few places in the Old Testament where God foretold the salvation that he would bring about and then be able to explain how God brought about that salvation or kept those promises and then be able to explain how that has changed you. Because that's our job. We are witnesses. There's a lot of different ways. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but at, at least in part, that is our job. 
We're to declare his praises. We're to proclaim what he's done. Verses 9 to 21, that I am he. Our last section then picks up on the last I am he statement in our passage. But this time, the I am he statement doesn't end with the he. Look down at verse 25. It says, I, I am he. And you think, okay, we've heard that two other times. It's just going to be a period. No, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So this third section then is, I am he who blots out your transgressions. It's not as short as the other one, sorry. I am he who blots out your transgressions, verses 22 to 28. We already saw in our first section that God loves us while we're still in our sin. And this section is drawing that out even more. So in verses 22 to 24, God takes Israel to task for their shallow worship. Instead of really sensing their need for him and desperately crying out to him, they've grown weary of him. So their worship's just surface level. It's self-centered and it's utilitarian. What can God do for me if he's not giving me what I want, I'm outie. Maybe something else will do me better. The end of verse 23, Yahweh points out that the offerings and sacrifices weren't meant to be a burden or to make them weary. He's right. The whole sacrificial system was designed as a way for them to fellowship with God, for a holy God and sinful people to be able to be together. And even more profoundly, that sacrificial system was designed to point forward to the greater sacrifice of Christ. He didn't burden or weary them with the sacrificial system. But that is how Israel viewed it. <sighs> Another duty to perform. Ugh. Do I have to do it again? And then God points out, I didn't burden you. But what does he say? End of verse 24, but you have burdened me with your sins and your iniquities. Instead of offering sacrifices, you're piling up sin. Verse 26, he offers a little courtroom scene. Okay, prove to me your innocence. But of course we can't. If we're honest, we are crooked, crooked deep down. We come from a long line of sinners. See that in verse 27? Even our religious leaders were sinners. We got Adam, Abraham, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, David. It's not a great track record. We're going to try and prove to God that we're good enough. Our case isn't very strong. It's going to be a short trial. 
See how different, how different this is? Be good enough for God, then he loves you. Prove how good you are. You can't. You need something different. What hope does Israel have if they're such sinners? What hope do we have? See, God will judge rebellion. Verse 28 makes that clear. Understanding the depth and richness of God's character revealed in this chapter makes no sense unless it's against the backdrop of a God who's also just, who takes sin seriously, who punishes sin. And if in the face of God's love we continue to reject Him and run from Him, we will receive the due penalty for our sins. But God holds out hope. It's verse 25. Let me read it one more time. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, how he's going to do this will be declared with greater specificity in chapter 53, and we'll see it then fulfilled when Jesus goes to the cross to take our sins upon himself. But that's the reality. Our only hope is that he forgives our iniquities and remembers them no more. So let's linger over God's heart. Sinners like us are told by God, I love you. We can trust that promise because I am he, that is the one true God who declared first and then saved. And then he promises to blot out our transgressions, to remember them no more. This is our God. Our sins, there are many. His mercy is more. And if we see Him as He is, if we see the Creator God as He is, we will trust Him. If we know Him as He is, we will run to Him. I want everyone in this room to know God like I do. I mean, some of you know Him better than I do. So I want everyone in this room to know Him like someone who loves Him better than I do and knows Him better than I do. But Isaiah 43 is true. It's true. And I want us to know Him better and better and better. Let's pray. God, I think of my friend. I think of those in this room. Maybe people who don't yet know you in Christ. Heard about you. Or have ideas of what God's like, but they don't know you. And I pray that they would know you and hear your voice.
I am He. I love you. Fear not. I'll blot out your transgressions. And help us all to see you well. To, to really know what you're like. You're amazing. We praise you. We want to proclaim it, witness to it. In Christ's name, amen.